have a story to tell here tonight about how the Lord Jesus saved me. And often we've discussed it with other fellows and people that have testified and how much you should share of before you were saved and how much after. We don't want to glorify the devil and we try not to do that. But at the same time, God has given us or has ordered our entire lives. And there's part of the story is what I was before and where I came from. So I'm going to tell you a bit about what I was before and what I was after. But every one of you has a testimony. And you know, your life is so important to God, every aspect of your life. And what happens to you in a day-to-day life is not insignificant. The least little things affect people all around you. And I'm going to share some of the things that I experienced. And all I can think of in a testimony, really all it is, is like a bit like being in a court. You're going to give witness, testify. So I'm going to tell you what my experiences were. They may be very different to some of the things that you do, but it's my experience. It's what happened to me. I grew up in uh, Cookstown. My parents were both saved folks. They were saved. Uh, my dad was saved when he was 28 or so. My grandfather and my grandmother on both sides of the family are both saved folks. My grandfather was an Presby- uh, elder in the Presbyterian Church. My dad was an elder in Cookstown Free Presbyterian Church. And so my, on my mother's side, they were both saved. The grandparents and my mum was saved. So I grew up in a home and an environment where we, we heard the truth. We heard the gospel. We knew, I knew the way. But I wasn't saved till I was 23 years old. I was born in 1974. And... I was born again in 1997, to save you the time, I'm 47 years old. I was born again on the 11th of February, 1997, in the evening, because it was six. Some, I have an uncle, and he used to say, but how would you know exactly when you're well, And you know when it happens, you'll certainly know. It's real, it's unmistakable. It's not just something that happens that you can't uh, put your finger on. And I'm sure many of you know that. As we grew up, uh, we just were, had three brothers. There's two brothers. There's three of us all together. I was the middle brother. I liked to play outdoors back then. We didn't have a TV until I was about 12. So most of our time was, might have had free time. We were making swings, building tree huts, jumping our BMXs over the ditches and trying to do everything like the, that young boys would want to do. And we played the only neighbours we had was two other wee boys and there was one girl and she hung out with us. So we were up to all sorts of carry-on uh, kicking football, playing rugby, and she used to join in. And that's the sort of thing we were at. I worked on farms. Uh, most of my uncles grew potatoes, so at that time we were planting potatoes or we were pick- picking potatoes. I didn't get to spend a lot of time at schoolwork. Uh, but it, at school, I did uh, do something that I guess would have set the tone a little bit for the good part of my life later on. It caught my imagination. At 12, I remember at school, the PE teacher sent about, I don't know, about 80 of us or 100 of us off to run around all these pitches and right out around the hockey pitches is about three quarters of a mile. And I didn't know I could run because I didn't really think I was that good academically at school or anything like that. I didn't feel as much ability at anything. But on that day, I didn't realise what was wrong with all the other boys going up the hill, why they were complaining and they were panting. And I felt fine and didn't understand that we had a, that it was anything, that I didn't know what we were really meant to be doing. So I run on, and then I discovered that 
they were all getting tired and I wasn't. And I ran on and ended up, ran the whole way right around the thing and was finished quite early. And then after the day I discovered I could run. I could run. So the PE teacher got me involved in cross country. And what I noticed, I started to enjoy this intensity and this training and the competitiveness, the competitiveness of the whole thing. I enjoyed that side of it. I wasn't the best runner at the school. There was another lad that was better, but still it didn't matter. I enjoyed the competition. And I, during that time, I would have went to the youth fellowship in our church and I still wasn't saved. And I remember the Lord speaking to me occasionally from time to time in meetings. And I put it off. I put it off. Getting saved, I, I resisted working in the spirit. I guess I was holding back and wanting to do my own thing in life. And you know, that was a very dangerous thing. You never know whether you'll ever get another opportunity. And I can say, I resisted too often. And God never spoke again for years. I mean, maybe, from I can remember from maybe 16 until maybe it was near, I think it was 22. And the Lord never spoke again. The Lord's a gentleman. And you know, don't underestimate his kindness and his patience. He will not hang around forever. If the Lord doesn't give you a chance to come to him, he may never get another chance. Some people don't get another chance. So don't assume there will be another one. The Lord was gracious. He spoke to me again later on. But anyway, as I went on, I went to the youth fellowship and I could always see that the other young people, there was something different about them that were saved. And you know, I could see it was a, it was a great thing to be, uh, to be saved, but yet... I had this hankering for wanting to achieve something or do something with my life. And it wasn't always what it, it wasn't following the ways of the Lord. And as I was younger, I got involved in a, a weight training. And it was just for fun, initially, me and the older brother. We had bought a weight training set and we trained at home, like most young men do, nothing wrong with that. And it was a bit of crack. But then I took it a wee bit more serious and I started to start the church and plan how it was progressing. I started to do it more and more, and uh, it used to be with working all day, helping my uncle in the summer, and I'd come home, even if it was at 11 at night, I'd still re- relentlessly, would, uh, at least four or five nights a week, I would still train for an hour, even they were all in bed, I would do that until before I'd go to bed, and I, I just set my mind, I was going to see, could I achieve it, get going at this, and at that time, I was only young, but I started to train more and more as the years went on and I got hooked into it more and more and made a little bit of progress. And then eventually um, I went to the tech in Belfast and I met a number of boys in Belfast in the gyms and their various places. And you know, they, and they said, you know, what's the point in doing all this training unless you've got some purpose for it, some sport or something you do? And it's just why not consider a competition, competing? I thought, oh, well, I couldn't really do that. You know, I, at that stage, I was only 19 years old. And anyway, but over the years, the notion of it kept coming back to me and the thought of it, what's the point in doing all this unless you just give it a go and see how you do? So it ended up, they persuaded me to give a bodybuilding competition. I go, I don't know if any is, like I said, it would be a wee bit different to maybe that most people's testimonies are. And... Anyway, they persuaded me to give it a go. So again, I thought, I'll give it a go. And I th- 
around uh, the time of, I'm just trying to remember when it was, the year, it would have been around 1996, or around that time, 1996, 97, uh, we went and competed in the first bodybuilding competition. I was 21 years old at that stage. And that night, I remember thinking, of, I just want to go and at least not make an embarrassment and try to at least have a reasonable performance and not look like uh, somebody that was, uh, shouldn't even have been there. And so I trained hard for the next, that, leading up to that, for that year. And I trained maybe five nights a week. And then leading up to it, we'd be training regular. Maybe six days a week, we'd be training. And at the same time, in the mornings, we'd be running for the three or four months leading up to it. So it was intense. It was a discipline, structure, everything, eating, everything we'd done. Everything we'd done, all we could to win. But again, we didn't know how, uh, how it would fare. But on the night, then the next thing was surprised ended up, I won the competition. And they came from Belfast and Dublin and all over. And I won the competition. And then they said, you know, you should also compete in the novice category, which was any age group, on the same night. And he says, but you think you're good enough to, to do well there too? So we, so we entered that competition that night as well and won that as well. So on that night, I was only 21, and here I came home with these two trophies. And this is the first time in my life I experienced a kind of success. It was not good at school. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time working on farms. We didn't study. And I'd got something that I felt had achieved something. I began to get really hooked in on this more and more. And it became the whole purpose of my life. It became the whole purpose. And I remember uh, we competed in a strongman competition in Cookstown and won it too. Um, then the local council had given me this uh, Sporting Achievement Award. Uh, for, I suppose, winning these competitions. And again, the whole thing, then what happened, I found as time went on, more and more people began to, they didn't see you as Nigel, they didn't see you as that boy that does this and does that, does the, wins these competitions. And it began to become almost a burden. And I had to, to perform in order and achieve in order to have purpose to my life. It became the meaning of my life. And that's what I did. I, I, so I, I got drawn into it more and more. And again, I competed the following year at 23 in the senior category. And I didn't do as well that time. I came third, but it was the highest category. It was the hardest category to do well in. I was the youngest out of them all uh, there. And, uh, but I, I didn't get the same enjoyment out of it that year. I remember thinking about it because... I sadly went and competed on the Lord's Day on a Sunday. Not that I'm endorsing the sport anyway, because it is a very vain, it's a vain sport. It's not something that I would agree with now. It's good to exercise, but it's, you know, it's vanity, very much so. Uh, but at the same time, I competed on a Sunday to much to the displeasure of my parents. I went against their will. And they didn't want me to do that, especially on the Lord's Day. And, you know, even if I had a one, I think I would have went home and I wouldn't have been any way satisfied or got any enjoyment out of winning, even if I had a one. And, you know, at that point then, again, I started to think about the, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of all this? Why am I doing this? Why am I putting all this extreme, intense effort in, which I did do and I, almost on a daily basis, and this strict, strict lifestyle that I had to live to get going in it. You know, although I done that, it also kept me to a certain degree from a lot of the things of the world uh, because I did go out to clubs and pubs occasionally with my friends but I didn't 
uh, drink on a regular basis, very occasionally, because again, I had to live this uh, controlled lifestyle in order to achieve what I was trying to achieve. So on one side, it was keeping me from a lot of those things, but on the other side, it was becoming a god. I mean, it was the number one. That's the way it was. It was number one in my life at that time. And I met various top uh, athletes. I met Steve Cram, who's 800 meter and 1500 meter runner, and, and you could see that they were at the top of their game in the world. I met all their top uh, universe winners in bodybuilding, Charles Claremont and Dorian Yates. And, you know, I remember talking to Charles Claremont, and I said, "You must be, you know, happy now that you've won." at the very peak of your sport. And he says, but he didn't seem to be content. He says, well, I will hopefully maybe next year I wanted to do this and that. And, and you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you should be content. Surely you must be, feel satisfied that you've reached the top, the very top of your sport. But he wasn't. And I thought, am I heading down this road too? Am I, what, what is this? What's it all about? And at that point, God started to work in my life. It's a shame my testimony, the things that I spent my time doing. It is a shame. It's an embarrassment when I look back now that I wasted all those years. And I did, coming from such a godly background in my home and my family. And I should have turned to God when I was a younger boy. But God began to work. And how he worked is in unusual ways. And he used some unusual people. Not always Christians. One, he used an atheist. And he used a Baptist minister's son. And, these, and other people too. And this is what happened. I remember at work one time, I was working in Atchison and Glovers in Dungannon, in the brickyard, packing these bricks, these big heavy bricks and blocks. You think it had enough uh, weightlifting done all day, but it had moved about 30 tonne in a day by hand, setting these blocks, splitting them, setting them. Then go home and train with weights. Uh, to say we at the house out would be an understatement because your appetite was just ferocious. And anyway... Gregor McGregor, that was his name, his Scottish fella. He still works there. I just heard there last year. They were sitting talking along with Frank at this brick, specialist brick machine that they made these special shapes of bricks. And I was walking past. It was nothing to do with me. But they're busy talking about, you know, what if they were to die the day, well, they wouldn't be. One says, well, I, Gregor says, I wouldn't be afraid, you know, to face God because I have never done any extremes uh, wicked things. I haven't murdered anybody or something like that. He was rating these things as if they were uh, the worst possible sin. I think Jonathan and myself were talking today about the greatest sin is really putting an idol before God. That's one of the things that God would absolutely recognition to get rid of it, to put any other God before him. And that's what I was doing. But anyway, Gregor says this, and then Frank, he was a devout Catholic fella, and he said, well, I go to the Mass, I carry my medallion, and he says, I think, you know, I go, I go to confession. Hopefully I'll be all right. And then that was all right. I had nothing to do with me. I was getting sorted out with whatever it was, packing a pallet. And next thing he says to me, Nigel, what do you think? If you were to die today, where would you be? When you grow up in a Christian home, and it probably puts that question straight to you, what are you going to say? You go, oh, I'll be all right. And you're not saved. Now, and then they said, no, but really, what way would you be if you, you know, today, today, where would you be? And I said, look, I don't want to talk about it. He said, that's the first thing you'll do, you know, if you've been brought up with the truth. You don't want to talk about it because it would bring you to the point where you'd have to face reality, you see. And, I, and then he says, no, but really, they pushed me, they, they, not physically, but they urged me to answer. And I, I says, look, boys, I don't want to talk about it. But if you really want to know, I says, if I die today, I'll be in hell. I'll be lost 
And I know that's the case because the Bible teaches it. That that's what the truth is. And if you're not saved, you'll never be in heaven. And I wouldn't, if I did, and when I no sooner said that, as I walked away, it just hit me, the reality. I've said it. I've opened my own mouth and I've said the very words, the truth of it. I'll be in hell. And Frank, you know, and Gregor, Gregor was the atheist. Frank was the devout Catholic. And they looked at me like, what? And they were so surprised that I would act. He says, do you really believe that? And you know, as I got a wee bit more sheepish and quiet, I says, yes, I do. And I said, they says, well, this is what their advice was. If you believe that, you should, you should do something about it. An atheist and a devout Catholic tell me I ought to get saved. So off I went and the Lord was speaking to me. A Baptist minister's son that also worked there. We were, he, he took an ocean one day and he tried to witness to me. He was about 18 years old and I was about 21 then. 21, 22. And uh, he says, you know, but you know, you need to be saved. And, and I cut him off and I says, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to hear all that. I've heard it all my life. I know, I know that, you see. I'm not saying it's not true. I says, I know that. I agree with you. you just, there's no point going on about it to me. And as I walked away from him, he sat and he shook his head and then he, he shouted back at me. He says, you mean to say you know that you need to be saved? You know if you die, you'll be lost in hell. You know you'll be lost forever. And there'll be no getting out of it. And I says, hi, I know that. And he says, well then, that, that's just stupid. He says, you're stupid. And you know that railed me. I was getting cross and I thought, but then the Lord just somehow worked on me and I could say nothing to him. What could I say? The man speaking the truth, he was right. It's the most stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. And I thought back about Charles Claremont, that Mr. Universe winner and all that. They did not grow up with the things I grew up with. I grew up with the precious word of God, the truth, the very revealed plan and will of God, the source and power of eternal life. And if they had had them things, they'd probably have grabbed it with both hands. But here was I, a fool, stupid. And you know, all I could do is put my head down and walk away. And that young lad, he was absolutely right. He didn't have a clue that I, that he bothered me even. He didn't even know that he disturbed me at all. And I never told him. And I don't know where he is. I've never acted, I remember leaving that and I wasn't that factory. And about a number of months later, I started out in self-employment uh, in a job. And you know, I never met that lad again. Don't know where he is. And you'll meet people and you'll have witnessed to them and you think you'll have no effect. But you do not know how much you are a link in the chain that spirals on to eventually they turn to God. But these people stood out to me as people that come in and shook me to the core and brought me to reality. I wanted to at least be honest with myself. Unless you want to live a lie and live in fairy tale land. But if you want to be honest, you have to hear people when they say things to you that are true. God made me to think and think and think. And I couldn't get away from thinking. And he just kept bringing it to what, what's, what's well worth investing your time in? What is this? What? And he brought me to this verse that then started to keep coming to my mind. Not, not all the verse, parts of it, but what's, what's your life? What's it worth? What will it profit a man if he'll gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And then the second part of it, it said, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? 
what are you going to trade your soul for? This? And that thought kept playing over in my mind for weeks and went on for weeks. And as I thought about that, the devil also, you know, he comes along and he has a thought. It's not the devil himself coming that I could say, but the thoughts of it, thoughts of the opposing thought to what God was trying to prompt me to do kept coming as well. And it comes to a point that's extremely strong. One's, the Spirit of the Lord's arguing, putting the, the urgency upon you that you need to get right with God. What's the point of your life? What is good will it be if you win it all and be the greatest of all? And you go to America and you do it all. And what good would it even do if you lose your entire soul? But meanwhile, the devil, he's coming. And I remember reading, and he come in a strange form. And I knew it was a crossroads for my life. You see, in bodybuilding, there's a lot of drugs, especially if you want to go right up to a high level. And steroids are involved. There's no way around it. And again, many of these other uh, top strong men's sports are also like that. But the thing is, I remember reading Arnold Schwarzenegger. He said this thing in an article. He said, I was prepared to do whatever it took to win. I would, and he says, unless you're prepared to go there, he says, you will never be a champion. You can never do it, he says. He says, you have to decide whether you, you want to do whatever it takes to win. And you know, as I was weighing all this up and thinking, will I go any further? Will I go further with this or not? The Spirit of the Lord at the same time has kept forcing me and putting the pressure on me. And at nights I wasn't sleeping. For three weeks leading up to when the Lord saved me, I was waking up at nights, night after night. Where will I be if I die tonight? I'll be in hell. I kept waking up night after night. I'd never have a problem sleeping. For years, never ever had a problem sleeping. Slept like a log. But then these three weeks leading up to us, uh, the Lord spoke, saved me. I, I was waking up night after night. So you can see the tug of wars going on. And it's real. If you experience it, it's real. And you can't explain it. You just know it's happening. Well, anyway, I went to a mission. And... At that mission, the Reverend Patterson was holding this mission in Cookstown. He held it in a wee hall, orange hall up the road. My brother had asked me to go many nights, and I kept turning them down. And eventually, I said, all right, I'll go. I'll go. Uh, because he was my brother, and he, he's, I cared about him, and he cared about me, and I went with him. And he would come out of the meeting, and, you know, I was okay. I came home. And meanwhile, all these things are building up. And I can't remember much about what he's preached about apart from something about a talent. God would reign in the plagues in the last days. A talent, one of the, the plagues was the, uh, something would fall. Hail, hail from heaven would be the weight of a talent. And I could remember that. And the Lord just broke me that night. As we came home, my brother Rodney, he was broken and it's funny how the Lord works the Lord brought Rodney to tears and he says Nigel will you ever be saved and you know at that point the Lord just broke me too broke me just it's just like a lump of clay and he just broke it into bits and I just become absolutely helpless and I remember crying like a baby and I'm not ashamed to say that and I just cried and, uh, and I said and Rodney he says do you want to be saved and I says I do I want to be saved you know, you don't even know what you need whenever you're, not, you're at that state. You don't even know. 
And you don't even understand what you should do or how you should, what you should, where you should be or what you should think or say. You were just broken of the Lord. I was broken of the Lord. And I remember talking to my dad. My dad says, Nigel, he says, just ask the Lord to save you. In your own words, I said to him, I wanted to be saved. And I says, what do I do? He says, just ask the Lord in your own words. So I'm down to my bedroom and I begged God to be merciful, merciful to me and, and give me uh, another chance just to, to come to know him. And that he, because I knew full well, I see when you're at that age, I tell you, it's a fearful place. When you realize the reality of hell is real and you're going to die and be lost forever, it comes upon you so strong, so fearful that you're begging. You'll beg, you'll do. I'll tell you what, I would have done anything. I'd have walked up the street on my hands and knees if I thought that would have made a difference. Nothing will hold the person back when they are desperate. And I was desperate. And I begged God. And, and, you know, I remember thinking, if only I could be saved. If only I could be saved. And I said to my father, I, after I got up off my knees, and he said, you know, I said, I don't feel any different. And he said this very important thing to me. He said, Nigel, it's not about feelings. It's about faith. And then he said these words. He said, just trust him. And you know, that's an impossible thing to do if you're not saved. Without the power of God, that is the gift of God that comes from God. Faith is a gift. It's not of works. You didn't work it up. Come from God. And God did it. He gave me that faith to believe because... With beyond my understanding how it was possible, I could find myself at peace, resting, no more fear. I found myself at rest and I could just trust God. And that, that was the marvelous discovery. I couldn't understand. How is it that I, I can just trust God? How wonderful. And I was at real peace. And from that day on, God done a work. On the 11th of February, on the 11th of February, and 1997. And you know, to this day, I still look back and as I think about being a Christian and the tests and trials of life that you experience, the Lord just keeps sometimes have to reset you now and again. You notice that? Get back to where you started out at. It's just by faith. You won't find any new discovery. It's still the same thing. Just trust me. Just trust me. Live by faith. And really believe me, because he can do the impossible things. Reverend Patterson, it was nice somebody come down to see me after the next day. He heard that uh, someone had got saved in the Davidson home, and I uh, testified for him in his church that time later on after that. Um, but I remember then after these things, I thought, what will I do now with my life? Because one minute, being highly switched on, day after day, year after year, pushing this, this ambitious plan and this desire, because it was the only thing I had that I was getting somewhere in, uh, pushing this to try to get to the top of my game and that sport. From that to just the Lord saving me to now not knowing what I do now. I, worked, I was in my job. Uh, at that stage, I had a wee hot food trailer that I... A chippy, you could call it, a chippy plan. So we had that. Um, it was just a means to get out of Atchison and Glover, so I'd done that for two years. And I remember the Lord just showing me to read my Bible and to study the Scriptures. And so as I started to do, I started to start and read the Bible right through. And it was all came afresh to me. 
But at that time as well, I thought I'll go back to the gym and just see the fellas and maybe thought, what, I'm not going to be into bodybuilding anymore. I'm not going to be into all this. And I found as I went to the gym, you know, I thought, oh, I'll lift this weight. Was, I don't know what it was to do something or other. Normally I'd have no problem lifting it. But, you know, without that absolute motivation and total commitment that you had towards it, you could hardly budget. I couldn't understand why I couldn't. There was no heart in it anymore. There was no heart for it. They could not do it because it took a huge amount of mental focus and you didn't realise that. And the Lord had took that all away. But anyway, I just done very little that night and just thought I'd say hello to them. And I thought, I'll maybe need to tell these boys that the Lord saved me because I spent so many much hours with them. And there'd been all backgrounds and some rough characters, some nightclub bouncers and stuff trained there and all sorts of fellas. And anyway, at the end of the night, the boys came over and they said, you know, is there any truth in this newfound religion that you have found? I said, what, who told you that? He said, oh, we've heard, we've heard. The word, the word had already got to them before I'd even got a chance to say within two weeks. And anyway, I says, yes, there is. And they were all laughing and elbowing each other for a laugh. Most of the fellows wouldn't have been from, you know, a Christian background. They'd been Catholic background and they maybe didn't understand. But it's generally a bit of a joke sometimes that these people live a wild life and then they get saved. This is the sort of the saying that goes around. So anyway... I said, yes, there is a truth to it. And I knew they were all basically mocking the idea of it. And I said, boys, would you hold it against me that I wanted to escape hellfire? And I said that to them straight and I knew, to get their attention. And they immediately just stopped and stopped laughing. And he says, no, no, we wouldn't hold that against you, Nigel. And I says, well, it's real. I says, I found, the reason I have turned to Christ, I says, because I found something even better than all of this that we do. That all this is something worth following. Christ is worth following. And I've given my whole life to him. And you know, it was an opportunity to witness. And the Lord gave me more opportunities. Then I was back again about a week later. And I went. And at the end of the night, I met this fellow. Well, I already knew him. Anias Quinn. And you know what? I didn't know what I would say to him, but the Lord put a strong urgency on me to say something to this man. He was just over there. It was nothing to do with me. And I thought, well, why is it I keep feel I need to say to him? There was plenty of other people in the room, loads of other people. But him, I need to say to him. He was in the biking, he had tattoos, and he had three or four earrings in each ear. And he thought, will he even listen to me anyway? And I thought, right, I'll have to say, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work out, but the Lord's urging me, I have to do it. And I went over to him and I said, you know, I was going to say to you there, I said, I was listening to a man giving his testimony. He's called Sailor Bill at a meeting the Reverend Patterson had held uh, not that long. I think it was maybe the same mission. And he said, Sailor Bill, he put that tattoo on my shoulder. That's the first thing he said. Talk about the Lord giving you an opening at all plan. But anyway, it's not always for the purpose you think. Sometimes the Lord has been gracious. But it doesn't mean people get saved. Anias didn't get saved that night. Anias was dead two weeks later. And I remember telling him, I says, yes, it's real. And I must have le never left him for about 40 minutes. And eventually everybody had left. The place was getting cold. And he says, look, I have to go home. And he says, all I can say is one future thing. He says, you certainly believe this. And I says, I do. He says, but it, before that, earlier on in the discussion, he says, you've been well suckered. He says, do you believe this nonsense? That's what he had said to me. Do you believe this nonsense? And you know, I could remember him saying that. You've been well suckered. Do you believe this nonsense? And he, he died in, in outside Cookstown. 
and there was a party and I think he had too much to drink that night and it was frosty ground and they found him outside the next morning. I think he went, I don't know, he must have went unconscious and he was laid in the grass and the next thing they found him dead. He was only about 20, maybe 25, 28 years old or around that. So I can remember that. There's only one other occasion I experienced that extreme pressure of the Lord to go and tell some. It was on a building site in Belfast about four years ago. And I don't know who the wee man was, but the Lord pushed me, urged me to speak to this man. And you know, that's the only other time I felt so urgently must tell this man. And I told him about it. He was joking and gunching and making light of it. And then by the time the 40 minutes had passed or half an hour, they weren't doing any work. But stop doing all the work we were doing. He was fitting fireplaces. Wee man, about 60 years old, and eventually he, he listened to me, and so did his work colleague. I don't know what happened to him, but I'm almost certain there's it's one of two things were going to happen. He was on the verge of either getting saved or he was about to die. Because God doesn't put you in such an urgency to tell someone unless there's really something serious is on the verge of taking place. And you can't get away from it when God pushes you. You have to do it. As I went on as a Christian, I promised God I would read me Bibles in Martyrs at a missionary event that they held at Easter, Easter Convention. And I remember that Dr. Paisley, he called people to put up their hand if they were willing to go forward with the Lord and give the Lord everything and really follow hard after the Lord in their life. And I put up my hand and so did loads of young people did too. And then he said to them all to come down to the front at the end of the meeting and he was going to pray with them. I was saved. It wasn't about getting saved. It was about going on with the Lord. And I thought, well, I could go down there, you know, and they'd all see me. And, but, and, and not that I was worried about that. And I thought, but would that really be, what, would that make any difference? And yes, it could. But what the Lord was putting on me, he, he wanted me to uh, set in place something in my life where I would commit myself to studying his word. Because you could be studying the word, but then you could drift away from it. You may not spend the time. I said, every day in life, I will take time to read and study the Bible. Even if it's a short time, I will take time every day. I promised the Lord where I was sitting in my seat that I would do that every day. You know, of course we want to read our Bible every day. But I knew, I was fearful that I would end up falling away or backsliding or something like that. Where so many people, you heard so many stories where people backslid. And I thought, I need to set this in place that I do not go away from it. And from my background of being spent a discipline and focused, I just disciplined myself that I must do this. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter what goes on. I have to read my Bible and read it every day. And I'd done my best to achieve it. There was days I did fail. The Lord doesn't like it. He doesn't take uh, keeping your promises lightly. You have to maintain that. So I sought to always go on with the Lord. And because I had made that commitment, I felt it was... Uh, set in place, a, a safe place to keep going on with God. And I learned many things as I went on with God. I got involved in outreach in the streets in Cookstown for about 16 years. Every, on Saturday nights, about every fortnight, we were going out fortnightly around Cookstown. So if you've ever been in Cookstown years ago, on a Saturday night, you probably would have bumped into some of us, and there's a three or four other fellows done it too. And we give out tracts and witness to people. And then we held open airs, thought, uh, time here and there, and we learned to give a word here and there. And we went to Dublin a few times, and I remember in Dublin, as the Lord showed me, he's in control of everything. 
And in Dublin, I remember we were out doing outreach. We went every few months. We went, took the uh, minibus down and we would uh, give out tracks and we held open airs and things like that. And this is way back now, about uh, maybe 19 years ago, 20 years ago. And this we was busy t- giving the track to this fellow. He was like a beggar on the street. He seemed to be of nowhere. He seemed to be living on the streets, this wee man. And I said to him, you know, the Lord is interested in you. Because the Lord says the poor of this world are rich in faith. And I says that means he's particularly saying you are rich in faith. You have God could save you. And I says you could have it all. You could be extraordinarily wealthy. You could have an eternal home in heaven. The things that matter the most. And you see, I'd no sooner said the poor of this world are rich in faith. And this boy grabbed me at the shoulder and pulled me back. And he says what are you boys coming down here to Dublin getting out gospel tracks and all this year preaching Christ and he says he represented the IRA and I, 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 I doubted it but I didn't know I think he maybe had a bit of drink on him I don't know but he wasn't wobbling about or anything but he, that's what he said to me he says and he pulled the tracks out of my hand threw them out over the street and I says we don't want any trouble and the other man was with us he came and he said we don't want any trouble look we're here just giving out tracks and this boy he says look I have a few friends and he had the finger up at me he says I can deal with you and I thought to myself, you know, well, he'll hardly shoot me with his finger. And that's what I thought. And then I thought, we really didn't want it. We went to walk away and he wouldn't let us away. And I thought, this is really getting contentious. I don't think he represented anybody. He wasn't, but he was saying that anyway. But it was just, uh, the devil had just his man in place to try to stop us. But you know, I can learn a thing because what I learned was in the midst of trouble, the Lord has a greater plan. And what was happening was the crowd was watching and gathering. And if you know where Arnott's is, near O'Connell Street and all, uh, I can't remember if they're two or near each other, but it's a huge big street and thousands pass that way back and forth. I mean, every minute there's maybe a hundred people go past. And the crowds were gathering a big circle right around watching this escapade. And he, was, he started to clench his fists and I thought, what can I do? I can't, I can't fight back. I'm not allowed to fight back. Uh, you know, you can't do that. So I started to protect myself and I thought, and I just prayed, Lord, I have to take a thump for you, Lord, if the disciples took a, a punch, sure, it'll be only, uh, sure, all for your glory. And Lord, but would you help us? And I'd no sooner prayed that and opened my eyes and this boy's still trying to <laughs> trouble us. And uh, the next thing, two guard men just lifted him off the ground and took him away and first hit him up against the wall. And all the people then came over and huge crowd come over to get the tracks and says wanted to know what this was all about and they could see if we had done if we had reacted badly we would have been a very bad testimony you have to turn the other cheek that's part of the deal you aren't there to fight and twist so i learned that god is all powerful and he is sitting ready to act any of these people in place to do whatever and he had a whole plan to witness and to win souls for him now, I don't know what happened but uh, to those people who received the tracks, but we know that God had his way. I'll tell you another experience um, I had, and the Lord was showing me that he's in control of every last thing. He has real power. I was doing this business studies course at that time at the Tech in Mockerfeld. And I was doing this, part of the course was uh, Sage Computer Accountancy, and I wasn't that good at it. I was just hoping to get through the thing. And I remember down my knees before the test and I says praying to the Lord Lord help me to get through this I don't know how I'll get through this but 
helped me to somehow get through this. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be that quick at doing it. I knew the Lord, what he did, he, he helped me through it. And he done it in a strange way. He gave me half an hour more in the exam than everybody else. And I tell you, it, it was, it's a very real thing. It was certainly what happened. Uh, we're into the exam and half an hour into it, there was about 24 in the room and all the people's computers in the room were all working away. They all went blank. And the man sitting beside me was an electrician. He was doing a night class in this. And everybody's computer went blank except mine. And all the ones to the right, to the left, behind me, and they're all the same computers, all plugged into the same power line. And there's, yet mine never even flickered. And what happened was, the man next to me, he was looking at me and he was saying, he says to me, he says, you're the chosen one. And I thought, what do you mean? He, it was sort of a saying people had. And he says, you're elect. And he was speaking from some point of view of uh, a saying went round, uh, like a worldly saying, oh, you're elected or you're... But it was as if, and he was saying that to me, it was as if the Lord said, no, I'm here. It's you. You're mine. I'm, I'm helping you. And what happened was, I needed all that three and a half hours. They only needed three hours. I needed three and a half because I was still about the second, the third person to leave the room at the end. And I passed the course. But it reminded me, the Lord was saying to me, he says, if you trust me and you ask for my help, he says, I can do anything. I can come and do things that you think are impossible. And he works in ways that you never understand. But it was just a demonstration to me that God is real. He's willing to help. He's willing to do things. If we'll trust him. Remember praying for my cousin. And he's still not saved. But I prayed that God would take sleep from him. You know why I did that? Because you know the three weeks where I couldn't hardly sleep before I could save. My brother Rodney, he revealed to me that those three weeks leading up to it, he was constantly praying that God would take sleep from me. That I wouldn't be able to sleep. That I wouldn't be able to sleep. That God would speak to me so strongly. And that's exactly what was happening. Slept like a log all my life, always slept. But those three weeks, I could not, those three weeks, I couldn't sleep. I remember praying for my cousin, and the same thing, I prayed, Lord, take sleep from him. And I hadn't been talking to my cousin lately. And I prayed and prayed for him. And I've told him this since. And I said, told him he needs to get right with God. God needs him. And I prayed for him that God would take sleep from him, that he would turn to Christ. And eventually, about five months later, I was talking to his mother. His mother says, you know, Alistair, he's in an awful way. He says he can hardly sleep. And I says, what? And, you know, then it just reminded, I just suddenly it reminded me what was going on. He says he's tried everything, the doc, been to the doctors, tried sleeping pills. The sleeping pills won't work. He can't get to sleep. And he says he, he doesn't know what's wrong. He's, and he says he's got a point. He's, he's actually got, he never thought, he, he says his mother was saved, you see, and he began to pray, God help me, what's wrong with me? And I realized what was wrong. And that I had been praying to that at the very end. And so I, I told him he needed to get right with the Lord. And, but I stopped praying to the point where uh, the God would take sleep from him. I, I felt it was pushing it too far. And then he came, he was all right again. And, you know, what I'm trying to tell you is, believe the things you pray but when you get up off your knees, I think what happens so often, we believe them when we are praying, but the minute we go to get up off our knees, then we start to doubt. Don't doubt. Keep repeating it as you get up off your knees and keep on believing it and keep saying it as you walk out the door and keep on saying it and don't doubt it. 
you will have those things that you ask for if you believe. And this was a thing that was in God's will. I, I felt it was right. And God was showing me it's real. When you're asking, you might not see any signs of it, but it's happening. It's already happening. I worked in KDM Hire, and it's placed down the road. But anyway, I remember starting there as a salesman, and I got paid off. And uh, eventually, the, the boss he kept saying to me, and I, I was trying to just do me work, work hard, and do everything right. And uh, he, he told me a month before, or so he says, you know, you try to be more like the other lads. And he says here, and, you know, I know you're a Christian. He says, but there's a lot of people here at work here too and you know they're Christians but you wouldn't know it you know and I, I, I said well I, I don't try to be awkward or cheeky or anything to anybody he says but you don't curse you don't swear and you don't go to the pubs and you don't do the things they do and try to gel more try to be more you know gel mix with them I don't know what it was but I says well anyway he told me eventually a month later he was going to have to pay me off and I said well what for what reason or what's wrong or he says, I'm, I'm not working hard enough. Or, he says, no, no. He says, definitely not. He says, he says not because you weren't working hard enough. You're, I says, well, what exactly? I think maybe he was privy to some things that weren't, they didn't want to know about. I don't know. But anyway, the Lord, I says, it was an opportunity. I actually turned it into an opportunity to witness to the boss. And I told him, you know, there's nothing. I can't let these things go. I can't just live like everybody else. I, I, I have to be who, Lord, save me. I says, I have to be who I am. I says, I would... I would never give this up at any cost. I knew I prayed for that man. And as much as I was annoyed that it was paid off, I prayed for him. God would speak to him. And I, I believe God was speaking to him. And I prayed for him for a long time. But that led to me going out on my own. It was a bit of a shock. I led to me out on my own, self-employed, to this tiling, which was not so easy to make a living at. It was tough enough going for years. Um, but we worked on at that and uh, I kept trying to go forward with that. But as time went on, I uh, remember chatting to uh, my grandfather and he was saying to me one day, he says, you know, when you're reading your Bible, make sure you don't put your ideas into the Bible. Read it completely as if you never read it before. Read it completely fresh. And you know, my grandfather was a godly man and I always took that advice serious. Try to read the scriptures and let God teach you. And that's what the Lord had been doing. He'd been teaching me over the years uh, from the scriptures. And I'm sure he teaches you too. But, but just before that time, and to get the thing in right order, I was praying about, uh, it was a good bit before that time, uh, actually a year or two, a few years before that, where I had been praying about a wife and uh, I remember just thinking, you know, maybe I'm meant to be single. Maybe I'm not meant to. I don't know. But I didn't feel it was going anywhere until eventually I come to the end of myself and just says, Lord, whatever your will is, if I have to be single, then I'll be single. But just then, that's when the Lord began to show me clearly who my wife would be. And I, met, I had known Leona for a year or two, but we... I had never went out with her, and anyway, I remember that night when I asked her out, I already knew that she was going to be my wife. She didn't know it maybe right away. It took a while for her to figure that out after a while, because, of course, the Lord had been showing me, but at the end of the day, the Lord showed me, and I knew she was someone I could trust. 
and someone that was a person that would uh, be faithful to God and she was going on with the Lord. And so it's sometimes, again, whenever you submit yourself to the Lord and stop trying to plan our own ways, that's when God then shows you the next step forward. And the Lord gave us four children and then time, in the Lord's time, you can't force these things, only whenever the, the Lord's in it. And if it's not, the Lord's not in it, it's not real. The Lord saved them. And they're, uh, they're four, three girls and a boy, and they're between 10 years old now and 17. And the Lord has blessed us, very much so. Um, I just as I went forward in life, I just kept doing the next thing. I ended up, I was in the committee, and they voted me as, to be a committee man in the church. I ended up, uh, needed a trustee, and I was the sort of person I couldn't say no because I felt the Lord went to the cross for me, bled to death. And you know, not everybody wants to enter into that risk of uh, taking the risk of uh, being a trustee. It wasn't that, maybe that many wanted to do such a thing as that because basically you're being a fall guy for everyone went belly up. Uh, you literally could take your house off you. But as I thought about that, the Lord was showing me that, you know, I'm your father and my father is the king of all the earth. He is extraordinarily wealthy. And why should I be worried about some wee issue like that? The Lord can come in in many, many different ways and provide. So again, it's another test of faith. And I said, okay, I'm happy to be it if you want. I'll do it. And they ended up a trustee as well. And so I keep, that's how it seems to go forward. I never go looking for these positions, but they end up falling into these things. And I'm happy to do whatever the Lord would have me to do. Uh, I found as a tailor, it was a ministry in itself. And the amount of homes, you know, just being a tailor from week to week, we were saying that hardly a week went by. You weren't sitting and talking to people about the things of God. And I don't know how it came up. It just keeps coming up from uh, Protestant homes to Catholic homes, to atheist homes. I don't know what it is. They'd ask you things and then the next thing you know, they'd say something and you'd be talking about this. And then before you know it, we're talking about the things of God and sitting around the table and, you know, it was a real opportunity to share the gospel and then all sorts of uh, teaching of the scriptures to people that need it. And so I think in my, uh, it really was a ministry. I then uh, later on we formed a company, a limited company, and started to retail tiles and felt it was the next step forward. And so we did that and with the Lord's help. Um, so again, uh, it seems to be it was the way the Lord has been leading us and we prayed about our way through all these things. But uh, also there's something uh, I wanted to say. You know, I want to see revival. And it's something that's always been in my heart for years. And you know, as I read these verses... If in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, uh, chapter seven, verse fourteen, they're well known. The four things that God says are required. It was talking about blessing the temple, but it's still a principle that applies today. If my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And you know, this is a promise, as I remember reading this at that time, 
And even now today, the Lord says these are the conditions. And if these are fulfilled, I will do exactly what I have said. But God, who cannot lie, will not break this promise. And I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. God would then begin to move mightily. And you know, at this time, um, as I wasn't that, at this time, as when I wasn't long saved, I began to think about all these things and I've read throughout the Bible in the Old Testament about the high places that still remained. And many good men, godly men, done that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet the high places remained. And I discovered a thing that was going on in our church and among the believers. And I didn't realize, and not just our church, right across the land. And there were certain things that take place. And again, my own brother, my father, and my grandfather had done these things also. And I often thought, and it, I come across a fellow who had read a book about it. And as much as I don't want to be having to say these things, so I'm sure it affects everyone. No doubt there's ones here, it probably affects you too. But at that time, I remember reading about those things that were basically oaths and various curses and things that were going on among believers that they did in these uh, various orders. And I thought, how could this be? It was the most shocking discovery of my Christian life that I never knew this could actually be the case. And our ministers and our elders, and even my brother and my dad, and all these things. But it's not something you can talk about because it's a very, very uncomfortable thing to say. I never was in any of these things, so maybe it's easier for me to say. But I really want to see revival. I no doubt the good, there's, there are better men than me. But I want to see revival. And you know, the only reason I'm saying this tonight, I never shared this before any time I've been asked to testify. I've never said about these things. But I prayed, and the Lord, I was talking to the Lord about these things, and, and, the, and I said, Lord, if you want me to testify anywhere, I'm happy to do it. And I hadn't testified anywhere for years. And I said, the next time someone asks me to testify, Lord, I will, I'll talk about it, I'll share it. And within two days, Jonathan phoned me. And that's why the burden and urgency is on me to say these things. I don't want to say these things. I don't want to have to say these things. But I am totally convinced, just like I spoke to Anias Quinn that day, that this is something the Lord wants me to say. That some of the things that God's people have done in the various religious orders and the Orange Order, it's nothing against the Orange Order, but some of the things, the religious oaths, the curses and the things that are taking place, which are contrary to the Word of God, I believe. I think we need to let them go. I don't know who I'm speaking to here, but I'm just simply saying these things because the Lord has put the burden upon me to do so. And you know, I think we could be on the verge of a great revival if his people would just obey him. You know, all God's people, right, the greatest of saints right throughout the Bible, have all had their faults. I have my faults, plenty of them. I feel I sin. The Lord's merciful and he's willing and willing to hear us. But sometimes we don't want to face the reality that there is something wrong. And you know, if the Lord, I won't force any issue on anybody, 
But if the Lord is speaking to you on this matter, let the Lord have his way. I'm just going to close by saying about what I started off with. In the scriptures it says that the Lord spoke to me, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. For what shall it profit a man, verse 36, he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If you're not saved tonight, I pray that the Lord would save you, that the Lord would speak to you. Pray that you would know the blessing of God in your life, that you would have the peace of God. For to know that you're saved is the greatest of all things. The Lord lately, you know, has drew me to a verse, a thing that's going on as well that in our time now that I've started to help out with abolish abortion and a verse that the Lord spoke to me that I should help them that I should get involved in it is this verse and uh, I'll just read it to you here now um, uh, Proverbs 24 and 10 as time went on I, I, I came across this situation that I didn't realize the extent of how much abortion is going on in our land. And that they realized that there was literally 25% of all pregnancies ended in abortion. 25% never see the light of day. And you know, all these things are getting worse and worse. And what can we do? We can only do what the Lord directs us to do. And I've seen these men, Wesley Mitchell and Mark Lamb, were making an effort to try to bring an end to this. They're doing whatever they could. And the Lord, as I read my Bible, I've seen these verses. It says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small, the Lord said. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? And the Lord was basically saying here, you know, you know about it. You know that these things are going on. Do something. Help these people. Try to stop this. So that's what I did. I just done the next thing that the Lord showed me. So I started, I contacted them. And, I, and you, you know, if you feel the same, you could help in stopping these things. Wherever there's a, a rally in this area, wherever abolish abortion is, you could help out. Uh, I don't know if you know Wesley Mitchell. He's, he's a good man. He's trying to do what he can. And you know, the Lord, he put it upon me. He says, don't try and get a sin. You don't know anything about it. Because you do know about it. And he says, I'm keeping alive your soul too. And he says, I ponder the hearts. And so I got involved in that. And the Lord is working. He's speaking to people. He's also speaking to the Catholic people through it also. And they also would even turn up and know that it's wrong. And they would try to uh, oppose the thing too. But sometimes, you know, God uses these opportunities and these troubles and these difficulties to bring a chance and an opportunity for them to hear the gospel. And you know, as I close the night, I hope the Lord has spoke to you. I hope the Lord has blessed you in some way in my testimony. And may he bless you this week too. Amen.